Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. As a Californian, I have a love-hate relationship with summer. I love how cold the Yuba River feels. I love the sweet tomatoes from my mom's garden. And I love sitting on the field at the Sacramento River Cats games, watching the fireworks. What I don't love is wildfires. The fear that just around the corner of every heat wave, there's a chance of something dry catching a blaze. Wildfire's always been a reality in California, but over the past few years, we've really seen how climate change and drought have created devastating fire conditions. We're looking at a new reality now. But the thing about Californians, we love this place too much not to fight for it. This is the California Report magazine. I'm Bianca Taylor, in for Sasha Coca. Today on our show, we're talking about wildfire, how we've adapted to it, and how it's changing us and our landscape. We're gonna go first to Southern California. In 2018, the Woolsey Fire burned nearly 97,000 acres in Los Angeles and Ventura counties. It was one of the most destructive fires in Southern California history. Among the stories that emerged from that fire was one that was almost made for Hollywood, about a group of Malibu surfers that stayed behind and helped save their town from the flames. It was always like a thing, you know, that it was just like, no, when there's a fire, you stay. You know, like I knew that from like the time I was like a little kid, you know, like you protect your own. I don't know. It was just like natural uh, instinct. It was instinct. This group called themselves the Point Doom Bombers after an infamous crew from the 70s that surfed at Point Doom Beach. These guys were aggressive about protecting Malibu and its perfect waves from any outsiders. Bombing big waves, bombing the skateboards. If anything, it was more bombers like, boom, bomber, you know, throwing up the fist. And we were pretty strong. We did some stuff I cannot talk about in this interview. The new podcast, Sandcastles, explores how Malibu's culture of intense localism actually helped them survive the Woolsey Fire and how it could present a model for living safely in wildfire country. Joining me now is host and producer of Sandcastles, Adriana Cargill. Hey, Adriana. Thanks for having me. So explain how you first heard about the Point Doom bombers. My background is as a live daily news producer, and I was in the newsroom, and I just 
happened to look up at the TV screen and I saw this footage of surfers on longboards balancing generators, like 50 or 60 pound generators, which of course, like if you get any water on a generator, you ruin it. So you have to be like very precise balancing these generators that weren't latched on through the surf from these boats that were hanging out in a cove. And with Malibu roads cut off, people there are bringing in supplies by boat, including water, blankets, diapers, gasoline, and even some ice cold beer. And as a surfer myself, I know how difficult that would be. And so I was just like mesmerized. I was like, what is going on here? And I just found there was so much more to the story than I could have ever imagined. The Woolsey Fire burned for almost two weeks along Southern California, but it was particularly hard for fire crews to get into Malibu. Why was that? You know, most people think of Malibu and they have this sort of image of celebrities and mansions on a beach. And that does exist, but that's actually a very small fraction of Malibu. Most of it is made up by the Santa Monica mountain range, and it's just steep, like canyons and rugged hillside. And it's actually a pretty rural area with about 11,000 residents. And so when there wasn't a lot of emergency first responders available, uh, this group of childhood friends uh, stepped up to protect their home neighborhood. Yeah, in the podcast, you mentioned how the self-reliance mentality that this group of friends had may actually have had a lot to do with the history of Malibu itself. Can you talk about that? You know, from the beginning of white settlement in the area, there's this sort of deep-seated mentality of take matters into your own hands and do it yourself and nobody's going to come help you. And and that really comes from the history of the Ringe family, which had this area from 1892 to 1941 pretty much all to themselves. Um, and so in the post-war period is when people really moved there and the residents who lived there knew that resources were never going to be enough to protect their homes from wildfires, and they accepted that reality. And so they fended for themselves. And these kids, you know, grew up with this mentality. So it's this particular group that saw their community burning and refused to step aside and do nothing. And so they came together and their response, I mean, they really made it up as they went. It sounds like one of the most important things these guys did was just roam around the neighborhood and put out fires, like in front of their homes and their friends' homes. What else did they do? Experts actually refer to this as mop-up. And this can really, really be huge for saving homes from burning down. And so that's one of the, the first things they did and then one of the members of their group, he's a reconnaissance Marine, and he has a specialty in radio operations. And they found these, like, children's Fisher-Price radios. Yeah, let's actually listen to that part of the podcast where Robert Spangle describes what he rigged up. So we had, at that point, I think, two children's walkie-talkies. Before dawn on Saturday night, technically Sunday morning, he went up to the top of the headlands. Uh, built a field-expedient antenna with a trash can lid, and then set up a little desk on this hill with a, a sleeping bag and some binoculars. And that first night, I spent every night after about every 45 minutes, I would like wake up, scan for 15 minutes, and then report if I saw anything, and then go back to sleep. 
I just want to repeat that. Every 45 minutes for the entire night, he would get up and check out everything from his perch, high on the point, and then radio to the rest of the group what he saw. This went on for five days. Yeah, when I heard that, it blew my mind. Just so creative. Yeah, at every turn, at every limitation, these everyday folks are just really making a difference using really what a community has, which is its people, and it's just willingness to spend their time and volunteer their energy. And they probably saved a lot of homes. Yeah, not only did they stay behind in these incredibly dangerous situations to save homes, when the worst of the danger passed, they were also the people that were bringing in supplies to help out the folks that were stranded behind the fire lines, right? Yeah, so a lot of the residents didn't want to leave, but there was a mandatory evacuation, so people couldn't get food, they couldn't get gas. So you're in a situation where you're basically cut off from the outside world and the sheriff blockades weren't letting anybody in. And every time a boat would try and land, the sheriff would motor in front of them and turn them away because that would van- like violate the mandatory evacuation. And so that's why they were surfing in those supplies. So all of the water, all the gasoline, generators, everything, um, you know, they were able to coordinate that and then actually get it to shore. And so this group, you know, set up a relief center to help those folks out and to help, you know, the volunteers that were still there fighting the fire. Um, so, it, I mean, it was pretty next level, honestly. <laughs> like, the, what they were able to achieve was so little. Yeah, I mean, what these guys were able to do, I mean, they put out fires, they brought in supplies, they really took care of people who had lost everything. It, it is an incredible example of what community can come together and do. But the one thing I couldn't shake while listening to this was, as a female surfer myself, like that kind of intense localism is the most toxic part of surfing. It's created some really uncomfortable and unfriendly and dangerous conditions in the water and outside of the water. And essentially, I mean, I see it as like white men dictating who's allowed to use the ocean. The the guys that were protecting their neighbors in this really heroic way, like they were raised on this tribalist mentality. Here's an older surfer, Kirby Cutler, talking about it. And then when you're old enough, you can get to point, and then you can surf out a reef. You didn't just go out there. You get your ass whooped. It was heavy duty out here. It was not not a place for the timid. These guys were gnarly, blood sport all the way. We all just watched. We learned. And we were like the little soldiers. We were like, we were being groomed to protect Point Doom and our chunk of Malibu. Yeah, so when I was listening, it was hard sometimes to reconcile how this attitude ultimately created a really positive outcome. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. I'm glad you bring this up. No one's actually asked me this question, but I've, like you, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a woman who surfs on a regular basis who hasn't encountered this sort of toxic machismo in the water. But one of the things that I found interesting is, and that I tried to show in the podcast, is just the complication of it. Like it has this really ugly side, but then it also has this side, you know, where the there was actually some positives for the community. And you're left kind of chewing on that, which I think is what you're reflecting. But I think this type of localism is has really been reduced since the 70s. And one of the things that was interesting to me in talking to these different generations is that you do see an evolution. 
Like one of the guys that I feature in the podcast, his name's Morgan Runyon. He runs a family restaurant. You hear some regret. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm not proud about. But it was a thing. And, uh, you know, as a younger surfer, I mean, that's I wasn't going to surf out at these spots unless I was part of the team. Morgan also says at one point, you know, he describes the the difference between his generation and his dad's generation as his dad wanted to be a cowboy. He wanted to be a surfer. And I would almost say this next generation is more interested in changing the culture around wildfires as their sort of focus um, for, you know, the future of Malibu and what what that devotion and localism to home looks like. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like these younger surfers really are changing the culture around wildfires. Like you said in the beginning, they didn't have a plan or a lot of resources, but now they're working with local fire officials to create a model for other communities to use. It's called the Community Brigade Pilot Program. Can you tell us what that looks like and how applicable will it be for other parts of the state? The most succinct way I can explain it is that there's three pillars. Uh, the first pillar is pre-fire, and that would be home hardening, organizing groups of people to have plans, evacuation. And then there's the second pillar, which is field operations. And this is that mop up. This is after the fire front immediately comes through. Brigade members would come through and be able to put out those ember fires that you know are the main cause behind most home loss. Um, and then the third pillar is post-fire. And so that would be like the relief center. And I think everyone can agree, if you look at the last 10 years, wildfires are getting worse. If LA County were to approve a pilot program, you know, this is a pretty big deal. And the way that it's set up is that it's made as a template. It's designed to be flexible enough to really work anywhere with any budget as long as there are people who are willing to volunteer their time. In September, LA County Board of Supervisors is scheduled to vote on this pilot program. So, you know, if they vote yes in September, then, you know, this experiment begins. Adriana Cargill is host and producer of the podcast Sandcastles. Thanks so much for joining us, Adriana. Thank you. Californians aren't the only ones adapting to wildfire. Our state's redwood forests have been fire-resilient ecosystems for millions of years. You can see these iconic trees all up and down the California coast from Big Sur to the Oregon border. And if you're lucky, you may even have a few in your own backyard, like Julie Mentor. She and her husband moved into their home in Oakland in 2017. There were lots of things they loved about it, but they especially loved the three big redwood trees in the backyard. But last year, Julie started to worry about these trees. One of them had lost almost all of its leaves, and even though they were watering it, it wasn't bouncing back. It had to come down. It's so sad. And I think it's it's that both for the tree, because, you know, they're such beautiful trees, they're such they're so old and majestic, but also scary to be like, whoa, this tree's not doing well. The one next to it isn't. The ones in my neighborhood don't seem to be doing well. And Julie's noticed this not just in her own backyard, but all around Oakland, in her neighborhood, off highways, really all over the East Bay. Julie says redwoods are looking dry and scraggly. 
So I'm wondering, is something happening to the redwood trees in the Bay Area? And if so, what is it? And is there anything we can do about it? Our friends on the Bay Curious podcast sent reporter and redwood tree enthusiast Dana Cronin to find out what's going on with the coast redwood. There's a really special feeling I get every time I walk through a redwood forest. My mind goes quiet, the only audible sound coming from the crunch of my footsteps. The temperature is always perfect. Even on the hottest day, it's still cool among the trees. And the smell. It smells so good. There's just no, even just stepping outside of my car in the parking lot, I was like, it just smells so good. I'm in the middle of the Roberts Redwood Recreational Forest in the Oakland Hills, hiking with Deborah Zierten, who works for Save the Redwoods League. She's going to help me teach you all about redwood trees and why they're unique to our region. Then later on, we'll get to the heart of Julie's question. What's happening to them? And just a note, for this episode, we'll mostly focus on coastal redwoods, which grow no more than 50 miles from the coastline. Now, Deborah grew up here in Oakland and visited these redwoods frequently as a kid. I don't think I fully appreciated the redwoods until I went away to school and then came back as an adult. And this was the place that I would hike to clear my head. And these were the forests that I came to. And so it is a very special place for me here. She's now dedicated her life to these trees. She's an educator with Save the Redwoods League. Her job is to teach school-aged kids about them. It's a tent. Okay, come on over. You can put your backpacks down and then we're going to circle up right here. I tagged along recently with Deborah as she guided about 30 fifth graders from a local elementary school through the Reinhardt Redwood Regional Park. The students are spread out across three wooden picnic tables, fidgeting in their seats. Can I have everyone's eyes up here? Okay, will everyone look up and take a look? These, we are in a little redwood grove. So these are all redwood trees. After setting a few ground rules, no touching plants, be quiet while others are talking, Miss Deborah, as they call her, launches into the lesson. So can you raise your hand? Do you know anything about redwood trees at all? Raise your hand if you know anything about redwoods. A student's hand shoots up. Yes. They are really tall. They are, redwoods are the tallest tree in the whole entire world. Redwood trees can grow more than 300 feet tall. That's taller than a 30-story skyscraper. And not only are they the tallest tree in the world, they're also among the biggest. Their trunks can grow nearly 30 feet wide. So how are they able to get so big? So everyone, do this with your arms. It's okay if you kind of lightly touch your neighbors. Deborah holds her arms straight out to the sides like a scarecrow. One of the things that makes redwoods so unique is that they actually hold hands with their roots underneath the ground. And that's how they're able to grow to be so tall and not fall down is that they help each other. Redwood roots are shallow and extend outward instead of down. Their roots extend out almost as far as the tree is tall, and they essentially hold each other up. In addition to being really big, redwoods can also live a very long time, like more than 2,000 years. 
That means some coastal redwoods today were alive during the Roman Empire. Those old-growth redwoods, which now only account for 5% of all redwood trees, can store more carbon than any other forest on the planet. We are pretty lucky to have redwood trees here in Oakland. And people travel from all over the world to come and see redwood trees. Redwood trees also have unique ways of reproducing. They produce seeds, like any other tree, but they can also sprout new trees from their roots. So often, redwood trees, you will find them in circles that we call fairy rings. Because if a parent tree gets hurt or injured, it will send out these baby sprouts into these circles. And it's kind of like a little family growing. They're basically clones of their parents. That's why you rarely see redwood trees standing alone, and more often see them together in a circle formation. Deborah tells the students, we can learn a lot from redwood trees. They exist in communities and rely on each other for support. They have hard exteriors that protect them from things like wildfires, but they're soft on the inside. Deborah says they're not so different from us. The earliest redwood trees existed more than 200 million years ago, alongside dinosaurs in the Jurassic period. Their natural range has shrunk a lot in that time. Now they mostly stretch up and down the northern California coast, as far north as the Oregon border and down to about Big Sur. Their distribution tracks with another iconic California phenomenon, coastal fog. So in the summer months, when there's a lack of rainfall, redwood trees essentially drink the fog. It's almost like a sponge sucking in that water. And then when their needles get full, also like a sponge, any of that excess water will drip to the ground. And it's almost as if they're creating their own rain. And they've adapted to this region in other ways, too. They're highly adapted to fire. Take the 2020 CZU Lightning Complex fire, for example, which burned through most of Big Basin Redwoods near Santa Cruz. Three years later, that forest is green again, and the old-growth redwood trees there are still standing strong. Redwoods also survived a period of severe logging in the late 1800s, when, after the gold rush, San Francisco was booming and timber was in high demand. Many trees didn't survive, though. In fact, most of the trees now living in the Oakland Hills are ones that have grown since that period of logging, young by redwood standards. Luckily, a movement was underway to protect redwood forests. Save the Redwoods League, where Deborah works, was founded in 1918 and helped to accelerate the preservation of redwood trees across Northern California. People started to see the value in recreation and see the value in these trees not as lumber, but um, for health and wellness and uh, for preservation purposes. But now they're facing new challenges. As our question asker Julie noticed, redwood trees in the Bay Area are struggling. If you walk and you look up now in most urban areas, I think everybody can pretty much see that, you know, there's some tops that are dying back. There's a lot of, you know, brown foliage in the crowns of these trees. That's Todd Dawson. He's an environmental scientist and professor at UC Berkeley and has been studying redwood trees for decades. We met up on a foggy morning at the UC Berkeley campus, which is home to many unhealthy looking redwood trees. See the thinning crowns? 
but the one right out there in the distance. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And you just see that over and over and over repeated so many places. Todd says trees are suffering all over the Bay Area, even up through Santa Rosa. And there are two main reasons for that suffering. Let's take them one at a time. The first reason is urbanization. The Bay Area has gone through a drastic transformation over the last century. And with all the concrete and all the pollution that's associated with urban sprawl, the, the trees are suffering. That's mostly because sidewalks and roadways are impinging on Redwood's root systems. Remember how their roots extend out really wide? Here we are standing 10 feet away from a Redwood tree on a concrete sidewalk that we've set concrete on top of a big part of the root system. And so it's really going to really have a very, very negative impact on the ability of that tree to get the water it needs, get the nutrient it needs. We're basically suffocating them. And on top of that, we have reason number two, climate change, which is impacting redwood trees in different ways. That fog that redwoods drink in, well, it turns out it's on the decline. In fact, since the 1950s, it's declined about 30% during the summertime, when redwoods really need it. That decline, coupled with periods of severe drought in California, is putting a lot of stress on the trees, especially giant sequoias, another type of redwood that mostly lives in the Sierra Nevada. Thousands of trees there have died due to a lack of water. The water deficit itself didn't really kill all those trees. It, was, it weakened them in a way where other pests and pathogens got in there and basically wiped them out, like beetles, fungi, other things like that. In addition to a lack of water, more intense fires are also impacting those trees. Although they have adapted to fire over the centuries, they can't handle the extreme fires we're seeing now, caused by climate change and bad forest management. All in all, Todd says redwood forests are struggling along their perimeters. As the wildland-urban interface stretches further and further into the wild, redwood trees are increasingly exposed to human impacts. They're losing their buffer. I think that's the future, is we're going to see a patchier world. And, and that's really disappointing and concerning for me, because, you know, we sit at the heart of that. Humans are really the ones that are in control and, and are having the negative impacts that we now see. Now, I think we've answered most of Julie's questions, except for one. What can we do about it? Todd has a couple thoughts on that. First, Julie, regarding your backyard redwood trees, Todd says you can try watering them, but... The trees require so much water they also require pretty special microclimates, meaning that they like it cooler, they like these moist, foggy summers like we're seeing today, you know. And I think you can't really recreate those conditions as a, as a person, right? Unfortunately, he says irrigation is a band-aid solution at best, because the problems redwood trees are facing now are much more systemic. And that's how we need to think about solutions, Todd says. One of those solutions is to protect redwood forests by getting them in the hands of governments and nonprofits, like Deborah's Save the Redwoods League. Todd says that work is critical to ensuring the tree's survival here in Northern California. The forests are just so special, these big cathedrals with these 
amazing and gigantic trees that there's just nothing like that. And I think anybody who's ever walked through a redwood forest for the first time just is in awe of what a special place and what a special feel it has. So I'm really concerned about them and I want to keep working with them. And I'd love to see those forests protected, you know, in perpetuity. Protecting them now means securing their existence for our kids, grandkids, and maybe even humans 2,000 years from now. That was reporter Dana Cronin. Her story first aired on KQED's Bay Curious, which answers all kinds of listeners' questions. You can hear more wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Amanda Font and Olivia Allen Price for editing and production help on this one. And that's it for the California Report magazine this week. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Susie Racho is our producer director. Brendan Willard is our engineer. And we had additional engineering from Christopher Beal. I'm Bianca Taylor, in for Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.